You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us every week. Before we get to this week's guest, we have some great news. We now have sponsors. And by supporting our sponsors, you, the Hazard Ground listener, will be supporting the podcast. Supporting our sponsors helps us put more resources back into the show. It helps improve production, support bigger and better guests, move us towards a studio format and away from just having guests that call in. So head on over to our website, hazardground.com. Click on the sponsors link in the menu at the top of the homepage and check out what our sponsors have to offer. You can also support the podcast by donating if you like. Again, all donations go back into making the show better for you, the listeners. You can donate to the podcast. Again, go to our website, hazardground.com, and click on the donate button in the menu at the top of the homepage. Look, we love what we've been able to accomplish in just one year of the show, but we need the support of our listeners to keep growing and make the show that much better. So leave those ratings and reviews on iTunes, support our sponsors, and donate to the podcast if you like. Now that that's out of the way... Joining us now on the Hazard Ground podcast is Cliff Anders, a former Apache pilot with the 82nd Airborne Division. He spent his time flying support missions over Iraq, protecting troops on the ground, and some of his stories can be recounted in a book called The Battle for Bakuba. Bakuba is a city about 30 miles northeast of Baghdad, and it was a very hot spot, a bad area in Iraq for a long time, and Cliff was responsible for saving many lives in the entire Diyala province where Bakuba is located, flying support missions and taking care of those on the ground. So let's welcome in Cliff Anders. Thanks for being here, bud. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. All right, so let's start. Uh, you know, it's weird. We've had a run of Apache pilots as of late. You guys seem to be kind of, you know, involved in a lot over the course of your careers, especially when it comes to combat. But let's start where we always do. Why did you join the military? How did you become a pilot? Uh, I joined the military with a desire, to, ironically, to be a pilot. Uh, early on in my life, I had this this desire and a dream to uh, to serve my country, and I wanted to do that. I I really just always gravitated towards the army because I think I had a lot of uh, a lot of uh, family members who were in the army growing up. Both my grandfathers were army veterans. One was a decorated uh, World War II combat vet, and the other one was positioned in in France for uh, World War II, and he came home. Uh, shortly after, and uh, I always just wanted to uh, to do that part for my country, to go above and beyond, so that I could say that I I did what I could when I was healthy and, and able to do it. And the pilot thing, I just I really always gravitated towards helicopters because I lived under out in the country, and I got to see a lot of helicopters flying over when I was a kid from the guard bases and stuff nearby, and saw a lot of war movies, and it was kind of a romanticism with wanting to fly helos. You know, you always see a bunch of UEs in that era in the 80s and the 90s after the Vietnam era in all those movies. So I, I wanted to fly helicopters, and I, I wanted to be a forester, ironically, when I was growing up. So I thought that I could segue after the military from uh, helicopter flying in the Army to flying for, like, the Department of the Interior or something. But uh, that never really panned out, but that's what I wanted to do. You know, it's ironic that, I mean, pilots, you never stumble upon it. Like, anybody who's been in the military a long time, Sometimes most people, they stumble into the career that they're in or the path that they were on because the military affords you so many different opportunities. And usually they're telling you what to do as opposed to you saying, hey, I want to do this. I mean, unless you decide you want to be a military doctor or a military lawyer or something like that, sometimes you don't always get to do what you want. But nobody ever seems to stumble on aviation. It always is a, is a path set from the very beginning. Absolutely. It's a passion. Uh, in my case, there was luck involved to a certain extent, but there are ways where you can you can make it 100% plus 
plausible that that's what you're going to do. In my case, I still had a little bit of possibly having my profession handed to me in the Army, but you're absolutely right. I think that you, there's a lot of things that you have to do that weed you out when it comes to be, to getting aviation as a branch within the U.S. Army, and I was – I was honored and also blessed with being able to pass the tests and pass the the, the medical checks and the, and the grading on the way to uh, attaining uh, a pilot slot, basically attaining Army aviation. So you're absolutely right. It's a it, it's a passion, and, if in, and I, it's ironic that that some people make it all the way to aviation and then they start they start the training and they they say it's too much for them and they actually do there's a lot of, there's a washout with people that realize that it's not for them so i've seen it both ways where people where people try really hard to get it and never get it and then other guys who who get it because they thought they wanted it and then they get there and they realize it's not it's not for them and they actually they actually change to another another part of the army so i've seen it both ways yeah well being in the air in a helicopter or even in a in a fixed wing aircraft is one of the uh, bigger fears everybody in the military has because you have no control. I'm putting I'm putting my life in guys like yours hands sometimes uh, as you sway back and forth through the air, making me nauseous. So it's not always the most uh, pleasant experience. But okay, so let's kind of get towards the the commissioning start of your career. What year did you commi- get commissioned? Where'd you end up going? I, I was commissioned uh, as second lieutenant in uh, May of 2000. Okay, uh, I was a graduate of Virginia Tech and. Uh, I started there. I started my active duty career there as an active uh, a gold bar recruiter. So ah, I got to yes. spend three months with the department. <laughs> you know what that is? For those listening, a, a, a gold bar recruiter slot is like gold. So when you do ROTC, okay, you go through your regular college and everything else, and, and you get commissioned usually a day before graduation or right around regular graduation. But before you get to your duty station sometimes, there is a lull in, in the amount of time that you – can go because you'll have to go to your basic course, your 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 initiation training course as an officer, and, and there might be a couple of months away. So the government says either you can wait and show up, or they can make you a gold bar recruiter, which is like a cushy job because you get paid your active duty salary, but you're essentially a college kid with a real life salary hanging out, which is an awesome job. Yes, absolutely awesome. <laughs> uh, it allowed it allowed me uh, it afforded me an opportunity to be at the the university you graduated from and try to sell that bill of goods to to everybody else who, who had the, the passion and desire or weren't exactly sold on it yet, trying to get them to come to the, uh, the Army. All right, so you get commissioned in 2000. You spend a couple months as a gold bar recruiter. What happens next? After, uh, after I finished up my gold bar recruiting gig, which was three months uh, at school at Virginia Tech, I, uh, I went straight to, to U.S. Army Flight School. So I went to the U.S. Army Aviation Training Center at Fort Rucker, Alabama in December of 2000, and that's where I immediately started flight training. It was a, it was a very quick and rapid integration into the Army. It was a uh, almost trial by fire. I mean, the, the, the ROTC department at Virginia Tech and the Corps of Cadets at Virginia Tech kind of set you up very positively for embracing the army experience and, and knowing what you're getting into other people may not have as much of a of an exposure to the to the military uh lifestyle before they get there and and they they have a harder transition and a harder adaptation to it but it it was immediately uh started phase one in uh, army flight training and went from there and flight training for me lasted uh 14 months so it was 14 months of of different phases of training it was absolutely insane amazing one of the best experiences i ever had in my life i tell a lot of people today 
is, is ever since my flight school experience that I learned more in 14 months of flight school than I may have in, in my college, uh, in, in four years of college. Well, if I do some math here, 14 months means that it gets you all the way through 2001. So you're in flight school when 9-11 happens. I was in flight school during 9-11. Okay, so do you remember the circumstances? Where were you? What were you doing? What did you see? I do, and uh, I had this discussion maybe maybe once a year, close to the time, or you know maybe every other year. But every day, every time nine eleven rolls around, I, I I take a moment to reflect on that exact moment that it occurred. And uh, I was I was in basic combat skills in a OH fifty eight helicopter that was probably older than it was way older than me, and I was flying in the Connecticut River bed in South Alabama flying formation with another OH-58, and uh, my, me and my instructor pilot were in one aircraft, and my my partner, my stick buddy from flight school and his instructor, uh, or another instructor, were in another aircraft, and we were flying, and we were flying, practicing formation low level in a riverbed when uh, we were actually called over uh, the radio saying that all aircraft needed to land at home base, and... Uh, I looked at my instructor with a puzzled look on my face, and I said, is that normal? And he said, no. And he said, usually when that occurs, there's been a tragic accident, meaning that somebody burned a helicopter in or there was a training accident at Fort Rucker. And you get a somber feeling just from that, from one person right. you know, possibly perishing or two persons perishing. And our high-speed sister ship had turned over a, a navigation radio to an AM radio station, and was listening to uh, to news radio, and actually was hearing the the development of the of 9/11 occurring real time over the radio. And he called us up and he told us to check ADF, which was you know short speak for saying turn your turn your navigation radio over to a radio station so you can listen to the radio. And we we switched over to the local news station and started listening to it real time. And nobody was talking about it over the radio, but we were listening to it come in on the frequency. And, and that it, it, life got very real very quickly because during that flight school experience where everyone had been in a, in a non-deployed military since, since the you know, Gulf War I and nobody had been deployed to combat for you know, the better part of a decade, every single one of us when we landed, the first thing we were met with was it, it, it's getting real. Yeah. And every single one of you is going to deploy to war. That's what we heard. Uh, a couple of things here just to kind of uh, give you guys some frame of reference. First of all, an OH-58, it, it's an armed reconnaissance helicopter basically used for, you know, recon, but it can do some air defense type things. And, and uh, just so people have some background on what the OH-58 is, but it's not like an Apache or anything else. It's a, It's more of a recon helicopter. But to your point about things getting real, it's funny because, you know, I was commissioned around the same time you were and all this prior to 9-11. And I remember vividly when I was going through my senior year and my fellow classmates were going to job fairs and career fairs and everything else. And they were asking me if I was going. I said, no. And they said, why not? I said, well, I got to go into the Army after, you know, after college because I'm doing ROTC. And their response to me was, why don't you get a real job? And, and they didn't mean it. They mean, But, I mean, here's the thing, Cliff. You know this. Nobody meant that in a demeaning manner. It's just... Things didn't get real until after 9-11. Then our job became real. I mean, you got to remember, yeah. in the late 90s, 
during the Clinton administration, this isn't a political thing, but the military was downsizing. You know, we were, we were getting rid of the active duty force because we didn't need it. We were spending a lot of money on defense. And then all of a sudden, 9-11 happens and you have to switch gears. And as you said, we were all told, and I remember being a, a first lieutenant at the time, we were all told, you're going eventually. It's going to happen. Yep. So that's just kind of the environment for, for young officers at that point in time and even young soldiers at that point in time. So you finish flight school and you get to your first duty assignment where? My first duty assignment was in a uh, in a unit that we knew uh, was 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 permanently based in, in in South Korea, and they were going through a fielding and training program because they were transitioning from the the A model, the Alpha model Apache, uh, to the Delta model. So the Apache was getting a massive upgrade from its from its original years to a a finely highly tuned and more sophisticated helicopter with much more integrated computer systems, a fire control radar, radar-guided missiles, along with the original laser-guided missiles to include the, the suite with the, uh, the 2.75-inch rockets, the 30-millimeter uh, chainless link cannon, and the, the ability to communicate from aircraft to aircraft, basically like a wireless Internet connection. So we had an, uh, a user data module that, that, uh, and, and upgraded avionics, upgraded... Uh, uh, air defense, uh, air, uh, aircraft survivability equipment that was that was upgraded on this aircraft. So in order to, to upgrade to that aircraft, the unit actually had to go through a recertification process at Fort Hood. So I was sent to Fort Hood, Texas, uh, to go through the uh, the parent unit that was the uh, cadre training unit that put the the Army active duty units through that upgrade called the Unit Fielding and Training Program. And that was based at Hood Army Airfield at, at Fort Hood. That's where I went immediately after flight school. After graduating uh, the advanced qualification course in the Apache, that's where I went and uh, spent uh, the better part of uh, 2002 to 2003, almost a full year PCS at Fort Hood going through that. That was the time frame when, uh, when 4th ID was starting to ramp up. And, and we had, uh, at that point, we had, uh, we had started uh, the first the first uh, Operation Enduring Freedom with uh, in Afghanistan, but Iraq had not yet uh, kicked off. All right, just because you went through a lot of the stuff on the Apache, for those listening, it's just basically the type of weaponry that an Apache has. It has Hellfire missiles. Those are anti-armor. Uh, it's got 30-millimeter rounds, which are, to, to give you an idea, I mean, look, think about a 9-millimeter pistol and how big that round is. Well, 30-millimeter is obviously, you know, th at least three times the size of that, so you just get an idea of kind of the, the amount of weaponry, and the Apache helicopter has the most weaponry of any chopper in the entire army. It's, it's the, the, the one that we use for attack and missions uh, uh, and things of that nature. So just so everybody understands what Cliff is talking about there. But, you know, when you get to Fort Hood, and this is where a lot of these units that were flying Apache helicopters and attack missions were, were deploying out of at the time, uh, when you get there, how quickly do you deploy from Fort Hood? Um. The, the, the fielding the fielding program is very rigid, and you have to go through a series of gates of training to to be basically to be certified. So any the the the, the thought process is once a unit they, and the unit has to be 100% manned as if they're deploying to combat too. So it's a full fielding, and so the personnel level is at, at about 105%. The all the aircraft are brand new, uh, and and all the equipment is is either 
pre-existing from where the unit came from, or it's brand new or or loanered from the apparent unit at Fort Hood. So you are you are full staff, best equipment possible in your in your in your helicopters. You have contract personnel from from four different uh, civilian contracted companies that basically put the Apache together, and you also have the parent cadre unit that is the subject matter experts in the Longbow Apache, and then and then your entire unit. So uh, we were there for one year to go through that certification process. So the, the like I said, the, uh, the the assumption or the or the the outcome is that when you finish that training program, you are the most at that moment in time, you're the most highly trained and highly proficient Apache unit in the Army. Cliff, at that point in time, when you're going through all this, was it frustrating because it was taking so long for you to actually get to a combat scenario? I mean, because yes. you're watching people go and come back and go, you know, I mean, remember, the, the Afghanistan war kicked off in December 2001 or October 2001, sorry, and uh, the Iraq war kick, kicks off in March of 2003. So at this point in time now, you are, what year is it when you finish this whole thing because I'm just curious how long it took you to actually get combat ready. We we finished we fin actually we, we finished uh, the fielding in 2002, and then the deployment for that unit. What our assumption was, based on what was going on with First Cav and Fourth ID, which were both deploying out of Fort Hood, was that once our unit was complete with with the fielding, they were going to cut us orders and reroute us instead of going to Korea. That we were actually going to go to Iraqi Freedom. That we were going to go into Iraq. That was our assumption for Afghanistan. We we honestly thought that we would be put into the combat rotation instead of being sent to Korea. But in in the in the in the in the situation that's in Korea with the armistice and the fact that we're not at peace with with North Korea, then there there's a requirement and there's 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 agreements with the country with the host country as well as the United States that we were, you know, a necessity there. It, it it started to it really started to wear on us very quickly, and it, it's kind of funny that you asked the question because we got deployed back to Korea when we thought we were going to be deployed to uh, to one of the two combat zones as it unfolded, mm-hmm. and and our our me and my roommate from from Korea had an inside joke. We were both we were both uh, in the same AQC class. We were commissioned at the same time. We were both exactly the same level of of time in in the army and same rank etc so we're very good friends and he, and he graduated from a from a rival school from Virginia Military Institute so it was a VMI guy and a Virginia Tech guy that were roommates in in Korea and uh two lieutenants and every and we're 12 hours off of east coast time in the United States so every night at about at about 10 o'clock at night we would call persecom we would call personnel command to our our branch officer for the for aviation, we would ask to be reassigned to third ID, which was the next thing smoking into combat. Right. <laughs> and we we were in Korea, frustrated beyond belief that we that we had to, to to spend out our time in Korea before you know while all the other Apache units in the states stateside were going to combat. And we were like I said, we were calling we were calling army you know Department of the Army Perscom every single night of the, of the work week trying to get orders to leave early and go go to another unit that was going into combat so that i mean we were frustrated yeah the, the and fr- very very you know just just distraught that we couldn't that we that we couldn't get there the phrase the army and all their infinite wisdom fill in the rest of the blank always comes to mind but you know let's you let's give it. people some background here because 
So for civilians listening who don't know this, it's not that Cliff is a war junkie or he's a guy that you know wants to go kill things and blow things up. That's not it. I don't think any of us. Yes, I think there are some people out there. If you watch enough movies, some people kind of have that mentality and things of that nature. But a lot of us, it's frustrating when you train for something for a really long time and basically make it your life's work. And then you want to, you know, you're watching all your friends get called up to the big leagues and you want to go play in the big leagues, so to speak, as a as an analogy. It's not that you want to, you know, again, do harm to anyone or anything, but you're watching your your fellow comrades go and risk their lives and you want to be alongside them. So that's kind of where the mentality comes from, that it's frustrating to watch other people deploy and you're sitting back here. I mean, the common person must be thinking, why would I want to go into war? It's dangerous. You're right, it is dangerous, and none of us are really, like, begging to go, but when the bell rings and people have to answer it, well, a lot of us kind of, to use a Bible passage, here I am, Lord, send me. You know, like, you raise your hand because that's what we're trained to do. Yep. So with that, uh, how long does it take you to get out of Korea and finally get deployed? We were the, well, we were both there for 14 months. Oh, gosh. And, uh, and, and we, we were out of Korea. Him, him and I cleared everything we needed to clear for uh for unit clearance to get out of korea as fast as we possibly could and he went to third id and i went to the to the 82nd so and and i had spent 28 months as a platoon leader in 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 the uh in the unit between the uftp time and the korea time and in uh in my company and based on the timing they were they were sending you know they 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 were sending people to other units that had fielding that had uh had uh openings like they they had immediate openings for to fill slots to to fill the unit mto and then they had uh units who had like further slots so when i got sent to the 82nd i was actually told that in route i had to go to the captain's career course in order to get qualified to become a commander so that was beyond frustrating because I wanted to. I, I tried everything I could, every every ninja magic and smoke and mirror trick I could try to to go to to go to a different unit, but it didn't work out, and I ended up at the captain's career course at Fort Rucker. Oh wow! Again, so, dear lord. <laughs> so I, I, I'm there, and I'm I'm a now I'm a guy who came from overseas, but not from combat in the captain's career course with a bunch of junior captains who were now combat veterans who were in the, you know, the same class in flight school or within a couple classes of me before or after who were in the, uh, who were in the captain's career course with me. So the, it was, it was emotionally toiling. I could tell you. Yeah. And just for those listening again, the captain's career course, it's one of those military schools that you need. Uh, once you get, you know, you second lieutenant is where you get commissioned and you get promoted to first lieutenant and then the captain and the captain's career course you can go to as a first lieutenant sometimes and sometimes you don't go to it until you're a captain but it's it's a necessary kind of check the block kind of course that every officer has to go through at some point in their career and again sometimes you don't get control over when you go to that all right so captain's career course check the block done what happens next i go i'm going to the 82nd airborne so naturally i go through three weeks of airborne school (laughs) it's just one roadblock in front of another for you at this point in time which is i mean listen airborne school is a lot of fun it is it is and 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 nobody wants to be a leg in the 82nd airborne so it's better to have your your polished jump wings and your and your blouse boots and and uh 
and your jump boots. And, and when, you, I, when you're called I, a leg, I'm proud of that. I'm very proud of it. When you're called a leg, it's when you don't have your jump wings. And airborne school is just when you jump out of a, a plane and parachute down to the ground. It sounds very simple. Some people get pushed out of the plane. Most people walk out freely, but one way or another, you end up leaving the plane and get on the ground, hopefully all in one piece, which is... You are leaving the plane, yeah, you're no le- there, there, there is nobody... There's some people like to pause in the doorway, which lands a large boot square in the middle of their back, but that's a different discussion for a different day. So, all right, you get your wings, you're in the 82nd. Now when do we get to deploy? <laughs> okay, the 82nd... The 82nd um, is, is basically at this point... It, they know that it's going to be the 82nd, but the, 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 Army, the Army Aviation is going through its restructuring. So they are now restructuring all the units under divisions. At, at, when, when you first go to Fort Bragg as an Apache pilot, you would have been in the 18th Airborne Corps, but not the 82nd Airborne Division. Right. And you would have been in one of the, the uh, legacy battalions, which was 3rd of the 229th or 1st of the 229th. And essentially, it was third of the two two ninth. I was third of the two two ninth for all of about three weeks, and I was put into a a staff position as a captain. And I was and I was summoned by the brigade commander at some point to be a, a commander. Put it to be put into the command queue for that battalion, but the 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 battalion was being demilled from the Alpha Models. It was one of the last Alpha Model battalions in the Army, and it was being sent back to Fort Hood to go through the same fielding and training program that I went through in the Korea unit. So so essentially they wanted you to go back through the same thing you've already done. And I had to. Oh, really? And that's, and I mean, I, I, there's no way that, I mean, I, like I said, I, I tried every trick there was in the book to get to, to, get to either first cav, Fourth, fourth ID or third ID, and at this point you got to feel it, like it's a conspiracy. <laughs> it is. It, 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 no, I mean, I did. I did feel like that, but it was. It was. It was. It was insanely uh, long to get to to get to the uh, that point. And and in the end, I'm grateful that it happened this way. And I'll tell you why in 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 a in a, in a minute or two. But the point is that. I got to go through the unit fielding and training program as a as a subject matter expert as a captain because I had already gone through it as a lieutenant and was 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 given a a huge honor and opportunity to be a dual seat pilot command in the Apache as a captain, which is which used to be rare in, in the in, in the old days of the Apache. Not too many commissioned officers were pilots in command in the aircraft. Now it's it's part of the army regulation that if you want to be a commander that you have to be a pilot command and that regulation was in its infancy of getting of getting implemented when i was going through this entire going through my army career and that was a that was a huge deal because a lot of a lot of personnel in the uh in the apache community didn't think that that commission officers were proficient enough to fly the apache as a pilot command because of the technology and because of the advanced nature of the aircraft. So at this point, because I had been through so much experience, and I will say that the Korea was about three years of experience chalked up into, into one year because of the amount of times that you deployed to field training exercises, reacted to real-world intelligence scares and thought that you know things were going to happen, and, and also the amount of, of, of operational uh, 
exercises that you did that required worldwide support. There's literally a global support for two two separate exercises that go on once annually in the peninsula of Korea because of the significant threat from the north and from you know from other nations north of, of there. That it's a it's a it, I feel honored to be a part of that that war and that tradition, but I was I was totally frustrated beyond comparison of not being deployed directly to OIF or OEF in my career. It was frustrating because at this point I had alumni friends. I had I had um officers and 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 soldiers alike that I knew from multiple units who had been you know who had been through at least one if not two combat deployments and then and then the other thing that really made it disappointing is that you're starting to lose people that you know and love yeah and and they're 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 making the final sacrifice and and you're not there to 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 do the experience with them or alongside them or above them and that's where it started to get frustrating so when it came it was it was a huge release like a sweet release of weight off the shoulders and it was like a slingshot flying into combat and uh, as i said before when you come out of unit fielding and training you are the most lethal trained and 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 most proficient apache unit in the army when you come out of unit fielding and training out of, out of fort hood so when we came out of fort hood we were at bragg just long enough to shoot a gunnery and then we were deploying to oif six through eight all right, and that was what time, what year, what month? That was July of 2006. All right, so we finally get to Iraq in July of 2006. After, after it taking so long and hearing stories and talking to people and then finally getting there, uh, what were you told prior to leaving that was your mission and your expectation, and when you got there, did you kind of feel like you were prepared for combat? I felt thoroughly prepared for combat. Uh, and, and, and the reason why is a mixture of about three different things. One, because of the amount of training that I had to do and the amount of live fire shooting that I had to do with, with the helicopter and with the amount of latitude that I was given with the helicopter. Because I was a dual seat pilot command in the Apache, I, I had done a lot of unit training, not, not as an instructor pilot, not as a maintenance test pilot, not as a a standardization pilot by any means, but because of the amount of experience that I had in the aircraft, I knew I knew a lot of its capabilities and was able to use those to the fullest extent that the aircraft will allow you to do. And the other thing was the amount of the amount of discussion that I had with 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 a with one of my mentors uh, from Virginia Tech was was our professor of military science who was who was a uh, Colonel Dennis Cochran, and I, he, he was like a second father for, figure for me at Virginia Tech, and he was also a, a great mentor in, in, in having patience because he said everyone is going to get the opportunity. He goes, there is no doubt. You're, just like was told to us at, at, at Fort Rucker, everyone is going to experience this. And that was the, the second major thing. The last one was – a lot, a lot of the discussions that I had with my grandfather, who was a who was a combat vet from the Battle of the Bulge in in World War II, so I knew that, you know, that 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 sinking feeling that people were looking at you, you know, out of the side of their eye or out of the corner of their eye, saying, you know, you haven't done your part, you haven't been there yet. Well, it's not really there. It's just something you kind of conjure up in your mind. And and the fact is that 
that once you do get there, it, it becomes a it becomes very real. And and we could have dealt with it so many different ways upon arrival as a unit, but our unit operated with with extreme precision, extreme violence, extreme aggression, and and very well tuned, well oiled machine. It was it was. It was something that I that you'd prepared for for so long, along with so many other people and so many other soldiers and officers alike. That when it finally came to execution, it's got to be one of the best the best things I've ever seen in in my life. And if you was to compare it to like the way a corporation would run or a a business would run, it's in, it's it's not really comparable. But if it was if it was possible to compare it, you would never leave there. You would never leave it because it was it was the best function and that you that you've ever been a part of. It was the it was the best accomplishment of a goal that you've ever been a part of. You talk about big league; it's exactly that. It's like going to the Super Bowl every single day. It's exactly what it's like. And I think a lot of people and civilians can relate to that. Obviously, the military can, but it's one of those things when you work for something, you put all the man hours in, and you and you you know, blood, sweat, and tears and all that, and you watch it come to fruition and it works exactly the way you had planned or close to what you had planned, there's a sense of pride in all that, and there's nothing wrong with that. I, I think that there's that's a that's a normal feeling to have, and I think everybody can understand that. And and with that, you know, look, the top the job is tough, right? I mean, it, it's not it's not an easy it, – it, it's one thing to go through PowerPoint slides and business mergers and acquisitions and things of that nature in the civilian world. Our job's a little bit different, and, and one doesn't necessarily mean it's better than the other. They're just different. And with that, when you start doing your mission there in Iraq, uh, what what are you kind of told at the outset, and you know what's actually going on on the ground? What are you seeing? When we got there in the outset, we were we were replacing another unit, obviously. So you're 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 coming in and you're doing your your left seat right seat rides. So you're sitting down beside your co part, your 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 counterpart for the. For the other unit, and you're starting to get the lay down. So you're, you're getting a rapid exposure to the tactical situation. You're starting to get, you're getting like a uh, an intel dump and, a, and an operations dump, and it's like a fire hose, and and it's so much detail that you know you kind of got it. You kind of got to get the same briefing every day for like five days straight, and then you start weeding through the details, and then you start understanding what's going on. And at one point. We were uh, we were sitting there thinking that that that, uh, that it was going to be a a light year, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was it was it was it was kind of like that sinking feeling, like you missed you missed the you missed the show, right? Because there was at one point where where a lot of the a lot of the higher ranking officers and a lot of the, the the strategic level thinkers were were transitioning us to stability and support operations, and <laughs> we were going to be moving into that that role. So it was going to be a lot of reconnaissance and observation, which is a strong point for the aircraft we're flying, but not necessarily the 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 full the extent purpose, of right. the capabilities of the aircraft, and. Thankfully, we were there because it, it turned into something totally different and was totally un- not necessarily totally unexpected. It was more it was predicted by people who were a little bit more proactive with their intelligence analysis, but it was it was ignored a little bit in in the in the uh, in the fact that they they wanted it they just 
didn't want it to happen, but they, they couldn't keep it from happening without essentially continuing aggressive combat operations. So they were committed to trying to wind down the war effort in in major conflict and in combat operations, thinking that they were going to be able to transition it over to the Iraqi army, the Iraqi police, and there was going to be infrastructure and things were going to be good. But it actually turned around with a huge delay and a little bit of a of a step backwards before we went massively forward with more offensive combat because of the, the insurgency and the amount of of weapons and, and insurgent personnel that were coming into the country that actually that actually changed the tide of that of that deployment because we started off thinking we were going to operate in, in one in one uh, province in Iraq we ended up operating in two provinces and, and conducting massive offensive combat operations for the the deployment and got extended for the surge and, and yeah, you just made, you just said the, the key word there for those who may not remember listening you know the the surge happened in 2007 this was president george w bush at the time his initiative to quell the violence in iraq in 05 and 06 the violence had spiked i mean it was weird because after the invasion it was quick it was over very fairly quickly within a couple of months remember it was shock and awe and then they pulled down the statue and then in 2004 there was kind of a quietness and a lull in all the violence and then in 2005 and 06 is when it really started to pick up again and the insurgency and these little factions and the sunni and the shia were going back and forth and they were both fighting the americans and fighting each other and hence the the surge that had to happen in 2007 to quell all the violence. Now, again, remember, they surged, I think, up to about 160,000 troops. In 05 and 06, there was still 110,000 troops all all throughout Iraq, which is a, a massive amount of troops who were there. But let's go into some of what you had to do, and, and in particular, uh, working in the Diyala province in Iraq, uh, particularly in Bakuba, which is a city about 30, 35 miles northeast of Baghdad, a uh, very short drive, only about 30 minutes away, and um, Diyala is full of kind of farmlands and, uh, you know, shrubbery and greenery. It's not like a, a very big city like Baghdad with a lot of buildings, but um, it's an area that sits right on the river and the Diyala River, that is, because you talk about the Tigris and Euphrates. But what was going on in that area that you had to kind of, you know, oversight of? We weren't we weren't responsible for that territory when we first got there. We were responsible for areas that were closer to Balad and Samara. Balad was kind of like our southern boundary when we first started, and we got kicked over into a potential support scenario where we were supporting an infantry brigade in in Muktadia and Bakuba. So the two cities in the Diyala province were were just like you said, uh, Bakuba being the closer of the two to uh, to Baghdad, and right on the river. And essentially, when we went there, it was the first time we went there was was at night and without any prior notice. You know, we were already airborne. We got called in to deal with with violence, which was a which was a team of of uh, a mortar team, an enemy mortar team that was that was you know, was uh, providing indirect fire on to Fob Warhorse, one of our bases. And that was located on the northeast side of the city, and they had egressed, and they were caught on a on the video feed of a of a shadow UAV, and the the UAV was just staying with them with their camera, with a FLIR camera. And they called us in, and we actually responded, and uh, to a troops in contact situation because there were troops on the other, on the on the wire 
you know, engaging this team as they were getting away, and then they got outside of their effective range, and we went to the uh, to the location. We basically got a target handover from the operators from the UAV, and and engaged the target. And without getting into too much detail, um, they one target was taken care of, and the other target was still egressing. And they sent a company of uh, armored light armored infantry out, and and basically conducted interrogations and found the area where where this individual was. But they never found the individual, but they found a lot of a lot, a lot of blood, and uh, and essentially that was our first exposure into Bakuba and we had never been there before and it was like I said it was at night and uh Apaches love to operate at night but the uh the the fuel and ammo refuel the uh the, the Ford ammo and refuel point at Bakuba is like a postage stamp so we're really hard to land at so we were we were never exposed to it during the daylight never never able to to land there and it's it's basically protected by a series of HESCO barriers so we we weren't able to land there. We weren't able to land and go in because we we're too low on fuel. So we ended up having to fly back to Balad and get gas. And then we came back down and still continued the coverage of the units while they were out in in that area looking for the uh, the second mortar team guy. So that was our first that was our first exposure into Bakuba. But after that night, it was almost a daily occurrence either in Bakuba or the city of Muktadia. And a couple of occur uh, of occurrences uh, further east, as you go towards the uh, towards the Iranian border, and uh, Bob Caldwell was out there. But that was that was a turning point for our unit because it went from we're not going to do much offensive operations to being probably one of the most prolific battalions of Apaches in in combat there because of the amount of engagements, the amount of of, of of uh, support that we provided for our, our troops, for the ground units, and and the amount of hours that we ended up flying, it's it, it's insane. Well, so it was let me a- let me fill in some stuff here, Cliff, for for a moment because you you went through a lot. Um, when you talk about um, you know that that tough landing spot that you were in there in Bakubu for the refueling, and you say it was only guarded by Hesco barriers. Hesco barriers basically is just a it's a metal fence with a with a tarp on the inside that that we would fill with sand as a barrier. I mean, you know, it's not like anything hard. If you could, you know, somehow climb up it, you could, you know, get over it. It's just it's 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 a temporary sort of structure that will allow you for some limited protection and hence why it's not really meant to be a a, a hardened facility where you can do a lot. It's just kind of again blocking you from being seen and and making it a little difficult for the enemy to get in. Furthermore, Bakuba in and of itself as a city you know, it was fairly calm and quiet, but it turned out to be a very bad area. Like it, it just sort of sprung up as a bad area in Iraq where all, you know, all, all the major fighting and all the big cities that you heard of, whether it was Baghdad, Dekrit, Mosul, you know, uh, we talked to guys in Mahmadiyya and Yusufiya, those areas. Bakuba just kind of became a bad area at some point in time. I mean, look, Al Musab al-Zarqari was killed there in, in Bakuba. You know, I mean, the, there, are, there was a lot of engagements going on there at that point in time. And I, I can remember... Uh, you know, you and I talked before the podcast, but we would just keep driving. Like, we would go nowhere near it because we just knew that Bakuba was bad. And for the people who had to work there on the ground, they would never have survived without air support from you guys. I mean, remember, every time there's an engagement, there are troops on ground. 
ideally you want air cover because the the firepower and the quickness and everything else that that the air brings that air power brings is unmatched the the iraqis had no answer for it all they could do was shoot rpgs and hope to shoot down a helicopter um and that was the only thing they could really do but you guys could move so quick with such speed and such efficiency that it was nearly in, indefensible uh from the iraqis part so Take me through your first engagement, so to speak, because I'm curious, after struggling for so long to get to Iraq, when you finally get there and you get to push a button, uh, you know, on a Hellfire missile or whatever it is, what's going through your mind? Uh, the, the things that were going through my mind at that moment was, one, I wanted to do the best job possible for the guys that were asking us to help them. That was... That was in the, in the, from the standpoint of just operating the machine. I mean, everybody already looks upon you as like, man, that guy flies that aircraft. Those guys are awesome, you know. And I and I right. and you want to live up to that, you know. So that was that was one thing. The 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 other thing was we had a lot of time to think about it because we had to fly like fifty miles, fifty plus to get there. It was like fifty three miles. We did it in about fifteen minutes, which that's probably. It felt like 15 minutes. I guarantee it was a little bit longer than that. But it, it just we flew as fast. I mean, we had we had awesome tailwinds, and 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 we couldn't get there any. We couldn't have got there any faster. It was. I mean, it, it it's just not meant to go that fast. But it's it, amazingly enough, the aircraft performed like like a Maserati. You know, so that was that was the best part about it. The the the, the next thing was, you know, uh, you know, be awesome, be awesome at it. You know, be safe, but don't mess it up. You know what I mean? It was every step is slow motion in your mind. Everything slowed down as fast as you were flying to get there. It seemed like an eternity, and you just kept going through your through your 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 pre engagement checks, your checklist over and over and over again. So at that point, we had overthought it. You know, and and we were. You know, the other biggest thing we were really concerned about, because you think about it time and time again, is because the max effective ranges of your weapon systems and, and, and if there was any friendlies in the area, any, any type of fratricide or any type of uh, collateral damage with any type of innocent type person. And at night, you've never been there before. You're trying to – you're really trying hard. And for me, I was, I was flying in the back seat of the aircraft. My sister ship was one of the, one of the best, most highly respected – Pilots that I ever knew in the unit and I've never known in the Apache community the army was was flying in the back in, in the in the back seat of that aircraft, and the front seat of his aircraft was one of my uh, flight school classmates, who was who was a captain, a junior captain. I was a, I was a, a a little bit more senior captain to him. We were about eight months apart in flight school, and in my front seat was was another uh, uh, junior warrant officer. A, 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 a younger warrant officer. He wasn't a junior by any means, but um, so the, the the crew mix was really good, and and I just remember flying on station, and and it was it was it was not a, a simple engagement where it's like there they are, fire, and it's over. It was us flying into the into the area, and then getting a target handover from an unmanned aircraft, and we had operated in the Apache for a limited amount of time, not just flying with the FLIR, which is on the aircraft, mounted on the front of the aircraft, which is typically used where you've seen where the, the, the display is only in one eye. Right. But we were also flying with MBGs mounted to the, uh, with two tubes mounted to the, uh, to the, to the helmet. So, 
at times you would flip up the, the display and flip down the MVGs in order to see things. And, and we didn't have a way of, of seeing a, an infrared laser with, with the systems on the aircraft. So we had to flip the MVGs down in order to see the command pointer laser. So I had my responsibility was to find the laser from the UAV, from the shadow UAV. So when he when he lit up the when he when he designated the target on the ground, I found it with the MVGs, and then and then I had to turn around and hit it with a laser from a laser pointer from our aircraft, and then the sister ship was able to find it. And then after that, we had set up a gun run, and it was essentially an outbound run to get some distance and then an inbound run, and we we both engaged with 30-millimeter, and we ended up uh, shooting about 200 rounds of 30-millimeter in order to ensure that the target was, was taken care of. Was there any and, moment for you when you had to pull the trigger that there was a pause? Because real world is different than practice, and, and people on the ground are different than simulator targets. I'm glad you brought it up. Uh, and, and I will say this, our, our, uh, our crew mix was, was, was a re- really good crew mix, but for me and my front seater, it was both, it was our first combat engagement and there was a definitive pause. It was basically, it's like taking a step over the ledge going, once I take this step, there's no going back. Yep. I will never be able to go back to that place ever again. Mm-hmm. And at that point, we hadn't seen a lot of violence on the ground yet, and we hadn't seen what, what the enemy was capable, capable of. And it was it's, – it's something to try there's – a, there's a level of trust when it comes to listening to somebody else's voice over the radio in, in, the, in the cover of darkness telling you, these guys did these bad things. I need you to take care of that. There was a, there was a, a definitive pause, and it, after that pause was over with, we made the decision collectively. It was, it was a, it was a, you got this. Yeah, I got it. And then, and then the sound of the 30 millimeter going off. And after that, we did multiple runs to make sure that it had been taken care of. Cause we, once we took that step over that ledge or from one side of innocence to the side of, of combat exposure, it never became a problem really ever again. As long as, as long as your moral compass was reading correct. Well, you know, the, the totality of the circumstances in the situation were correct. It was it was a very it was a very definitive moment. Yeah, I mean, I, I concur completely, and I've spoken about my experiences, and there was a pause for me as well too. As you mentioned it so succinctly, there's no going. You're a different person after that moment. Everything changes for you. You can never go back to being the person you were before, and you view the world differently. You know, I hear you talk about the guys that you flew with with such passion, and I can I can hear it in your voice. I wonder what it's like for you to protect troops on the ground that you've never met. Like, I, I get the sense that, you know, if you saw one of your, your fellow pilots and their chopper go down, your heart would start racing and you would have the, the biggest sense of fear in the world. But watching troops get engaged in the ground that you don't know, even though it's your job to protect them, there's not that same emotional connection as there is to the pilot. So, so what is that like? When you, when you don't know them, it's still a, it's still a, it's a, it's a, it's a point of pride. It is a huge, huge point of pride because they know you, and I'll tell you why. They know your call sign. 
They know the sound of your voice. They know the cadence of your voice. When you're talking on the radio and they hear that same voice one night and then they hear it the next night and then they hear it the night after that, they know you as well as some boyfriends and girlfriends know each other here in the United States. It's that intimate. When you hear that voice and you hear the person that's in that attack helicopter, that's in that Black Hawk helicopter, whoever it may be that's covering you, and you know that it's them, there's almost a sigh of relief. Like You can hear them get calmer once they hear your voice on the radio. But the very first time, it's like, let's get acquainted. You know, and and when you're covering them, the only thing it, it's a point of pride because you want to give them the best possible coverage, and ultimately you want to save their life. You don't. You, the, 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 a good night was when everybody went home. That was the, that was the that was the scoreboard. If everybody went home that night and you were the ones responsible for those guys on the ground, it was a good night. What about a bad night? A bad night was if it was anywhere between one and. Multiple. I mean, the, sometimes the numbers were <sighs> disheartening. Did you ever have a feeling, though, that you didn't do enough from your position to save a life? Very rarely. Um, there may be one or two situations out of a hundred where you felt like you could do more. I mean, you always war game it, and and trust me, we those 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 discussions where between your crew members or whoever you were with on that particular mission were, were the stories of, of, of contention for the rest of your life. Because, yeah, you always wonder if you could have done more. It, it does. It, it kind of builds back up in you. But at that moment, you've had so many iterations, so much execution, so much, so much training that it is, it's almost normal as well to look at it and go, you know, I don't know if there's anything else I could have done because we did this, we did that, we did, you know, we, we chose this tactic, we chose that. It was very rare that we came out of that, any, out of any engagement and said, oh, oh my God, we screwed that up. But, but again, if there was a loss, if, there, if it wasn't perfect or if it wasn't, if it wasn't up to our, our, our standards and our and, and, and our point of pride, like if, if it wasn't up to the level that we wanted it to be, those discussions went on for years, and they still do. Is there I mean, a certain engagements never leave you? I was going to say, is there a particular engagement that stands out to you that stays with you? There's a I, there's a lot of them, uh, but in terms of there's. The biggest engagement that sticks out to me that uh, that will be with me uh, for what happened on that particular day. There's this one here. We were we were flying. We were basically flying from point A to point B. We were going from north to south. We we're going to a little village called uh, uh, Kambani Sad, and we were we were flying over a village, and at at one point. You see the, the black smoke at eye level because we're at about a thousand feet above the ground, and you look and you see black smoke billowing up like it's a fire going off right in front of you, just a big gas like somebody poured a bunch of gas on something and lit it on fire. And you look down and you realize that the entire half half of the village is on fire, and basically the insurgents have murdered a bunch of innocent people, and everybody else has fled, and they're taking over the village. And at that point, we're just like, uh, who, who's the friendlies? Who's the enemy? 
is there any U.S. forces around? Because there was no, there was no U.S. forces seen. So we we called the unit that was responsible for the battle space, and they're like, they went frantic very quickly, and they told us they asked us if we were at this specific location. We're like, yeah, that's right where we're at, and they told us to get out because they were arranging an airstrike. <laughs> So we had no idea at that point in time that there was fast mover jets from the Air Force coming in to drop 500-pound bombs oh. <laughs> on the village that we were flying over. Okay. <laughs> so at that point, we got out of the area very quickly. Quickly, very yeah. Smartly. And they asked us to stay close by. They wanted us to be secondary to engage after the, 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 the jets had engaged. So at this point, what we're, we're watching the whole situation unfold, and we can't do anything because we're waiting – for the for the jets to drop these these large bombs and we can't get close enough to do anything, so we're sitting at literally like 17 kilometers away, but we could see it very well because we had good optics on the helicopter, and and we're watching the situation unfold and the uh, we flipped over to the JTAC frequency on a different radio and we're listening to the whole thing happen real time, and two F-16s come in and they drop a thousand pounder and a 500 pounder. And then they come back in and they do two 500-pounders. Wow. And we watch everything happen. On the second run, the, the two 500-pounders, they had us come in to the, to the uh, minimum uh, safe engagement range for their bombs so that as soon as they dropped the bombs that we could come in and continue to engage the targets. And the jets come in, drop the bombs, and they had to break and go get gas. So they went to an aerial refueler, and we went in and emptied our aircraft. We we used we used everything except what we needed to protect ourselves to get back to the to Fob Warhorse and reload. And this day seemed to never end because what I mean, right before that happened, we're we're watching it, but they the, the, the bombs were highly accurate from the F sixteen. You can't say enough about how accurate they were when it came to putting the, the bombs where they wanted them. And then after that we went in and and started engaging the uh, the targets and what what was happening was they were stockpiling ammunition and stealing ammunition from the friendlies. So an Iraqi uh, police post had been abandoned and they were taking weapons and ammunition and they were getting this. So we destroyed it and then we destroyed their vehicles and then we continued on with as much as we could. At that point, we landed and we reloaded the missiles and reloaded what we could get very quickly. And they're calling us on the radio looking for more firepower while we're doing this. And we literally took off out of the, the ammo refuel point at Warhorse, and within 30 seconds, while we were climbing out of there, we were already firing our first missiles to, to re-engage. Wow. And it was just constant, and it just never ended. So this, this engagement in particular was like, we couldn't believe what we saw. I have, no idea, I have no idea to this day how many people perished there at that, and, and, and how many more may have if we would have never saw it. Or, but we did realize after the fact that, you know, or during the during the flight that that, that somebody else was dealing with it because they didn't send in any, any ground units until the the situation was under control. I mean, we hammered it, and at at that point we 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 had uh, emptied the uh, the rails again. We fired up we fired uh, four missiles each out of the helicopters, and then uh, went back and got more and came back again and and ended up getting in closer. And during this engagement, we, we went through six different F-16s, three, uh, uh, three pairs of two that came in, and they did 20-millimeter engagements at, at 
Marine vessels that were trying to steal more ammo from the same spot on the banks of that village going down the river. And then we went in and, and engaged those targets as well to make sure we scuttled those vessels and sank them. So all the ammo and stuff went down in the water. Uh, other other personnel trying to escape on motorcycles. Um, I never I never thought in my in my days flying this 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 rig this 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 amazing aircraft that that I would literally observe a, a motorcycle blowing up. It was I never seeing uh, you know that type of thing. You know it's like you're, you're always engaging like a flat you know, BMP target or a flat piece of cardboard or a, a troop personnel carrier or a T-72 tank. But the the types of stuff that we that we got to see, it was it, stuff you'll never see again in your life. And, and, and it's it was, it was it was absolutely necessary. And like I said, it's a point of pride. I mean, and, and we watched. So at that point, it, we had seen F-16s off our wing engaging targets after they had gone and refueled before they had dropped. 3,500 pounds of, 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 of bombs or so, and then us emptying our rails three times on this location. And even further that day, while we were in Kambani Sad, after that was over with, I had A-10s underneath us engaging targets before they left, and we went back in and continued. So that's probably one of the, the days where it just seemed like it was never-ending, and it was one of the, one of the most cruel but unique things I've ever seen. Did the amount of firepower that you, you know, leveled that day, does it ever, did it ever seem like too much? No. <laughs> I mean, to be blunt about it, 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 it was, our job is to meet and exceed the requirement for, for superiority in combat. And if, if, if one, if one American troop is on the ground, we're bringing we're bringing everything we have to save that man's life or that man or woman. We're bringing everything to save that 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 soldier's life. I don't care what it is, what it, what it takes. And then to think about it further, with what we were doing with the personnel and what the what the eventual surge took care of, the people. I, I got to go on civil affairs patrols as a liaison in in Iraq with uh, with with one of our our, our uh, sister units from the 82nd and the people, the people had admiration and love. The innocent people had admiration and love for the American soldier. And the, and, and I, and, and you could see that it was very easy to see. It was rare to see that from, from that standpoint, especially when you're typically in the cockpit <clears throat> to know that everything is in an order in this world. There is good and there is evil. And, there were good people and are good people in that country, and I can say that we saved countless good people's lives in that country from that standpoint. And in, in, in the same aspect of the American soldier, if we're in their country and we're trying to save their country's, uh, you know, uh, significance and future in the world, then I think we, I think that every time we engaged and every time we 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 used our weapon systems, we brought everything we possibly could, and we would do it for anybody that that represents the soldier or those those people of that country. So it was a it was a unique standpoint, but that's how that's how I've justified it in my mind. So when you look back on your career as a pilot and everything that you did while you were in Iraq, I mean, what what's what's kind of like the feeling you have about the job that you did? I feel that we that we executed as an Apache battalion, and we actually that we 
executed probably one of the best choreographed and most highly trained units in that helicopter for that period of time. And, and, and we probably saved more lives than, than the, I, I, I guess the point would be that we, that we saved countless lives. We saved, we saved civilian lives, we saved good people's lives, and we saved a lot of soldiers' lives. And we didn't save everybody. I mean, we lost, like I said, a bad night was, was losing one person, and we, we had that happen quite too often. But <clears throat> what I did see, this way I explained it to a, a lot of folks, especially right after I came back, because a lot of folks had zero idea what, <clears throat> what, 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 uh, what we were actually accomplishing. Uh, you're met with a lot of questions. You're met with a lot of assumptions. But when I first got there, along with our unit, we we flew MSR Tampa, the main route north to south in Iraq. Yep. And there were no streetlights from from Samara all the way to Baghdad. There were no fire stations. There were no hospitals. There were there was no there was no infrastructure. There was no electricity in most of the cities. There was people robbing oil from the from the pipelines. There were people there was insurgents stealing crude oil and stealing everything from from innocent people. In the fifteen months that we were there when we left, there were fire stations, there were hospitals, there was village organizations. There was there was people interacting with with civil affairs to get money to, to use concrete to build things further. MSR Tampa was fully lit eighty percent of the way. I could have used it as a as a as a as a as a navigational aid most of the way to crit from Balad. There was infrastructure. There were there was Iraqi police stations starting to get formed up that weren't corrupt. There was Iraqi army units starting to get confidence. So when I in those fifteen months, because I was able to cover so many square miles or square kilometers of ground in a helicopter, I got to see all that. I wasn't limited to being on the ground driving the same route back and forth every day where I saw the same bombed out route or bombed out buildings. I mean, we leveled the city of Bakuba. I mean, our unit would probably take credit for two-thirds of the destruction of that city during the surge. And and it was something that was tactically had to be done and strategically had to be done in order to get rid of the evil and get rid of the, the insurgency so that the, the, the refugees and people that had left that city could come back and retake, reclaim their reclaim what was theirs. But that's what I saw in 15 months of combat, and that's how I know we did a good job that we did. Now, it may have been from an attack helicopter platform, but it was an amazing thing to see. Well, I mean, listen, I, I, I think you've, you've eloquently stated – some of the things that were very underscored in the war in Iraq. Uh, and I could personally attest to it as well. There's a lot of good that went on that nobody reported on that wasn't shown on CNN. It wasn't shown on Fox news. There's a lot of good things that happened uh, on a day-to-day basis throughout the what 10 plus years of war that was going on uh, in Iraq. So with that, you know, I-, I think that it's, it's great that your story tells that because without it, you know, we just look somberly upon we have a, a somber memory of the war in Iraq, and that's it, for people who were there. I think that does a disservice to us. I think it does a disservice to people who fought hard uh, and, and saved lives and and made things better. However big or small that scale was, Cliff, it certainly was impactful. And and that to each individual is a legacy. And I think that's important to to tell. 
Yes, indeed. So with that, what's kind of the final thought you have on your military service? My military service is, is something I would trade for absolutely nothing in this world. Uh, my military service definitely defines me today. I, uh, I have searched uh, far, but maybe, maybe far, but not wide, um, for camaraderie, for uh, passion, and for precision and excellence. And I've never found anything that was as close to what it was when I was in when I was in that particular unit, and then also in in in, the, in that helicopter throughout my experience in the army. I have my my service is something that is invaluable to me. Um, I I was I was honored and blessed to be able to serve our nation in that in that capacity, and it gave me a technical skill. Um, it gave me a lot of skills that that I can't necessarily use every day in the corporate world or on the streets, but it gave me, uh, it did give me professional technical skills that I definitely can use and I can put it to good use every, every single day of my professional life. And, and I am, I am grateful for those who mentored me, uh, from previous generations in, in the military and from my, from my previous generations of my family that were, that were army veterans that, that, that probably shaped my desire to do this. Uh, when I was, you know, from from about ten years old, or maybe even earlier than that, through my through adulthood, so I am I'm beyond words uh, when it comes to the the people that I served with. Uh, they they were they're they're some of the best people I've ever served with and and, and worked with in in the world. So I it's it's a it's definitely it's a, it's a it's a it's definitive of me, and like I said, I trade it for nothing. So that's how I view my military experience. Well, Cliff, we thank you for your service uh, from the bottom of my heart. And as a fellow brother in arms, you know, thank you for all that you did and the lives that you saved and the impact that you made. And certainly we thank you for being part of the podcast, man. Appreciate it. Roger that. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.